0: All right, well, thank you so much to our praise team for leading us in worship and music this morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 6 as we continue to work our way through this amazing gospel account of the life and the death of Jesus. While you're turning, some of you may saw it, but our daughter Allison and her husband Lucas are expecting our sixth grandchild and so uh, we're really excited about that. I think she may be due sometime in December, so we're really looking forward to that, and it's made us think a little bit more about the relationship that we have with our grandchildren. It's a special thing. Those of you who are actively involved in parenting your children, at some point in time, by God's grace, they will all leave your house. They will all move on, And maybe, perhaps, maybe they will give you grandchildren, and you will build a special relationship with those grandchildren. And we have a unique and special relationship with each and every one of our grandkids. Our oldest granddaughter, Riley, uh, is a snuggler. She loves to crawl up into uh, my chair if I'm sitting there, and she likes to snuggle. And one of the things that we have that we kind of have a special thing is we like to talk about our favorite things. And so I know all of her favorite things. And she knows all of my favorite things. She just told me the other day, she said, Papa, I, I changed one of my favorite things. And I said, well, what, what, what'd you change? She said, well, I went from liking pigs to liking giraffes. So now her favorite animal is a giraffe, but she wanted me to know that because we have this special thing. Uh, that we talk to one another about our favorite things. Well, I say that because we have favorite things in life, right? We have things that are special to us, things that kind of rise above the rest. And I, I wanted to say, as we continue on in our study of John chapter 6, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's also one of the longest Chapters in the Bible. You may have noticed that it's 71 verses long. But John chapter 6 has been a go to chapter for me for many, many years in ministry. I really enjoy what John has recorded for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this chapter. And I think you will see why it's one of my favorite chapters as we continue to move through it. Well, I look back and uh, I wanted to see when we started our study on the book of John. And we started way back on October the second, twenty twenty-two, and we're only in chapter six. We have a long, long way to go. In fact, we're going to take a bit of a break this summer because I want to preach a short series on the importance of the church in the life of the Christian. But I think we would all say the Gospel of John has more than met our expectations as we begin to work our way through it, week by week we have been encouraged and challenged by its powerful truth. This gospel account written by John is proof positive that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Well, this morning we're going to concentrate on verses 15 through 21, and it's the story of Jesus walking on the water. And just for reference, this is the fifth of the seven signs or seven miracles in the gospel of John that show Jesus' deity. And you remember the first sign or the first miracle, it was Jesus who turned water into wine at the wedding at Canaan. This sign is recorded for us in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The second sign of Jesus' deity was the healing of the royal official's son in John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. The third sign was the healing of the paralytic man at the Pool of Bethesda, which we looked at in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. A couple weeks back, we looked at the fourth sign that Jesus uh, showed his deity, and it was the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that that was just the men in attendance. When you add in the women and the children, that number that Jesus fed that day was probably somewhere between 20,000 and 25,000 people. And that sign is recorded in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 6, which directly precedes this account that we'll consider this morning of Jesus walking on the water. And as I said, that is the fifth sign. Then there's two more to come, the healing of the blind man in John chapter 1, or John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, that would be the sixth sign, and then the seventh and final sign in the Gospel of John is the resurrection of Lazarus, and we'll look at that when we get to John chapter 11. All in all, there are up to as many as 40 miracles that Jesus performed that are recorded for us in the four Gospels. And while we're on the subject of the Gospels, which are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, let let me just take a moment, a few moments, to uh, drill down on their uniqueness and importance. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as we have said, are called the Synoptic Gospels because they give a synopsis of most of the same events from the life of Jesus. But as we've seen in our study, the Gospel of John stands on its own. It fills in the gaps that the others leave out. And it's said that the Gospel of John contains 93% new material as compared to the other synoptic Gospels. Well, it's important for us to know that each one of these four Gospels was written for a different audience and emphasizes different things about Jesus, For instance, the Gospel of Matthew was written primarily for a Jewish audience, and it emphasizes how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the kingly Messiah. The Gospel of Mark was written primarily to a Roman and or Gentile audience, Christians. So it includes some Old Testament prophecies. It explains many Jewish words and customs. Uh, In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is portrayed as the divine servant, Like Mark, the Gospel of Luke was also written primarily for Gentile believers, and it too explains a lot of Jewish customs, uses Greek names. Luke presents a carefully laid out narrative of the life of Jesus and presents Jesus as the Son of Man and emphasizes His full humanity. Well, as we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, which was written with both the Jewish and Gentile audience in mind, we find the emphasis on Jesus not as the Son of Man like in Luke, but as the Son of God. So here in John's Gospel, we find Jesus providing more revelations about himself than in any of the other Gospels. And as we will see, the Gospel of John gives a much more detailed picture of the events during Jesus' last days. So if you want an easy-to-remember outline of the Gospels, and you're taking notes this morning, Matthew presents Jesus as king. Mark presents Jesus as servant. Luke presents Jesus as man. And John presents Jesus as God. And so with all that in mind, let's take a look at our passage this morning, and we will... Uh, work our way through it. Uh, Our passage begins this morning in verse 15 of chapter 6 and goes down through verse 21. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountains by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum, and it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. And then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And so they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were Going. So as we look at this this morning, we're going to find four distinct actions by Jesus. Four distinct actions from the text by Jesus himself. And the first is Jesus' perception. Notice again verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and to take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. It's been very clear to us as we worked our way through the gospel of John that Jesus was working on his own timeline. Most of our schedules are dictated by others, right? When we think of our life, a lot of our time and schedule is dictated by other people, Kathy has our family calendar at home that she keeps for our family. It tells me where I need to be and what time I need to be there for family events and so on. I keep my own ministry calendar. Hopefully those coincide together. But oftentimes when we look at our life, uh, others dictate what we do right? That's fair. If you work a job, they tell you you got to be there from 8 to 5 or 9 to 5 or 9 to 6 or whatever the time frame may be. So we're often working on other schedule, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. He was carrying out the detailed plan of the Father one step at a time, continually revealing to different groups or different crowds of people that He was exactly who He said He was God in the flesh, God incarnate, the long-awaited Messiah, the one sent by the Father to redeem sinful mankind. He was the God-man on a mission. Verse 14 reminds us that the people who had witnessed his great miracle of feeding the multitude recognized that he was someone special. Well, of course he's someone special. Who can do what he did and who can do what he does? I mean, two little fishes, five little pieces of bread, and he feeds 20 to 25,000 people. And at the end of it, he has all these baskets full of the leftovers. Who can do that? They recognize that he is someone special. Is that recognition that Jesus is someone special enough to save? And I think we need to ask the question today in our society and in our culture because Jesus is given a lot of lip service. There are billboards that have Jesus' name on them. There are shows that talk about Jesus. There are people who paint themselves as preachers or pastors who talk about Jesus. But knowing that he is the miracle worker, knowing that he is someone special, is that enough to save? Obviously not. Because the crowd had seen what he had done, they knew he was someone special, perhaps even the prophet that was foretold of in the book of Deuteronomy, but it was not enough to bring them to saving faith. Jesus is fully aware of this crowd of people and the fact that they did not view him as the Savior. But how do they view him? Verse 15, as a powerful political king that could help to deliver them from the oppressive hands of the Romans. So in a sense, they looked at Jesus in a selfish way. He's someone special. Nobody can do this. There's something unique about him. I mean, who can feed twenty, twenty-five thousand 25,000 people with hardly anything? Two little fishes and five little pieces of bread. Who can do that? Well, it must be a prophet. It must be someone special. But they did not place their faith and trust in him as the Messiah, the, the one who had come to to. to to live a perfect life and to go to the cross of Calvary, to die in the place of sinners. It's kind of a selfish relationship. Hey, maybe we can use this guy to get what we want. Maybe we can use him. He seems pretty powerful. I mean, I don't know who can come against him. Maybe he can represent us, and we can get rid of the Romans, and we can take back over our country, and we can rule ourselves so this was their thought. This was their idea. Maybe, 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 just maybe, Jesus can deliver them from the oppressive hands of the Romans. So his perception of this leads then to his withdrawal. So the second action that we find here is Jesus' withdrawal and we find this in verses 15 through 19. So again, verse 15. So Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum, and if he had already be- it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing. And then when they had rowed out about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. And I think we would be afraid too. What in the world is going on? Something supernatural is happening. Jesus is walking on the water. And we'll see how that is viewed here in a moment, but because of all of the situation with the crowd that he had fed, Jesus withdraws. And this is the bulk of the narrative here in the lead up to his miracle of walking on the water. Jesus withdraws back up into the mountain to be alone and to pray to the Father. And how do we know that he went back to the mountain to pray? Because the parallel account of this story that Matthew record. So I want to take you to the gospel of Matthew because we find more detail there about what is transpiring. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 14, and we'll look at verses 22 through 33. Matthew chapter 14. So this is one of the beauties of the Gospels. When there are parallel accounts, we get to find different information, different detail. And by the way, some have said, well, you know, how can the Bible be inspired by God and these men that wrote the Bible have different accounts of what happened? I mean, isn't that a sure sign that that God isn't the author of the Bible? that he hasn't made all of these accounts exactly the same. You know, the interesting thing about inspiration is that there's really dual authorship in a sense as it relates to the Bible. So God superintended human authors to write using their own personalities and their own backgrounds and their own experiences exactly what God wanted them to record. So all of the accounts are inspired by God, but God allows these men who wrote the Bible to record various things that hit them, maybe in a different way than they hit the others. It's interesting in the Gospel of Mark, there's another account of this story. It's very brief. It doesn't include all the detail that we have in John and we have in Matthew. Inspired by God. Inspired by by god but here we have a little bit different information that Matthew recorded that John didn't record and i kind of liken it like if a bunch of us guys went to a ball game and we went over to watch the phillies play and we had a drive over there it's an hour and a half the traffic's horrible we get to the game and we enjoy the game if we were to record uh the Instance of us going to the game together, we would record probably different things, right? We'd probably emphasize different things. I might talk about the hot dogs and how good the hot dogs were. Some of the other guys might say, oh man, it was just wonderful to be there. We sat in the first row. It was tremendous. Well, I might not have recorded that, but they may have, but they're both true. Good hot dogs and we sat in the front row. And so what we have is a different account from a different person of the same thing that happened. So let me read this to you, and you'll see what I mean. So look at verse 22, Matthew 14. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took a hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why do you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. So a little bit different account of the same event. So Matthew gives us a little bit more here to work with. Matthew says here that Jesus made the disciples to get into the boat and to go ahead of him to the other side of Galilee while he spoke to the crowd and he sent them on their way. And after he did that, Matthew says that Jesus went back up to the mountain to pray and so he had some alone time with the Father. This is profound. I have read this story over and over and over and over again as a young boy, even prior to the point of my conversion and becoming a Christian at the age of 15. I read this over and over and over. And one of the things that I do as I prepare a message to preach to you, first, I read the text, I reread the text, I continually reread the text so that the outline becomes evident to me. I I write down the outline, and then I develop the message, and then I preach it to myself. I don't stand up and come into the church and stand here to an empty uh, auditorium, but I'm constantly thinking about this in my own life and in my own heart. How dare anyone preach or teach hypocritically? And so we have to soak in the Word of God, stand before you to be able to proclaim God's Word, but first it must have resonated in our hearts. And so, as I read this and reread this and continued to pour over it, there was a profundity as it relates to Jesus going back up to the mountain to pray, to pray to the Father. Now, think about this. Jesus is equal to the Father in every way, right? He's equal to the Father in every way, but while he was on the earth, in an earthly body, he voluntarily places himself in subjection to the Father. That's what Jesus says in the latter part of John 6 that we're going to be getting, that we're working our way through, and we'll eventually get there. Verse 38 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So let's hang here with this account from Matthew as Jesus goes up on the mountain, to pray to the father. So let's think about this for a moment. Again, Jesus is God equal to the father in every way. And yet his submission to the father puts us to shame. He's equal with the father. And yet he voluntarily places himself into subjection to the father while he's on the earth. What is one of the first things that go when we're busy with life? I mean, I'll answer it for us. Prayer, right? What's one of the first things that go when we are so busy and our calendars are full and we have all these things to do? It's that alone time with God. Dependence on Him. And so I want to ask you, because obviously prayer was a huge priority in the life of Jesus, Is prayer a priority in your life? It was in the earthly life of Jesus. And because of that, I want to spend some time this morning considering the importance of prayer. If you recall, we considered a couple of weeks back that James says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person matters. So prayer matters to God. Somehow in complete harmony and unity with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, prayer matters. There is an immense value to prayer, Scripture says. So much so that we find Jesus repeatedly praying. I want you to think about this. So I want to consider with you more about this amazing gift of prayer. It is absolutely astounding that you and I have direct access to God. Think about it. We have direct access to God. God is open to receive our prayers around the clock, 24-7. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's available to us whenever we want to talk to Him. And how many of us would say that our prayer life is lacking? talking with him. That's what prayer is, right? It's not him talking to us. He's talked to us in his word. It is our avenue to talk to him. God is available for us to come to him at any time. And I want you to think about how big God is because there are millions and millions and millions of Christians In the world today, I have no idea how many, but there are a lot of people that are the people of God, and all of them can be praying to God at the very same time, and He hears their prayers and He answers their prayers. That's how big our God is. God is not just some distant God, He is a personal God, accessible 24 7 for us. And what do we do? We take it for granted. We take it for granted. We can go to them at any time, right? So having a regular time to actually stop from our schedule and to pray to God, uh... So again, just stay here. I, I want to remind us today that Paul instructed the church at Thessalonica to concentrate on three things. You remember the passage? It's First Thessalonians 5:16 through18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. As this translates to the church, the redeemed, those who make up the church, the ecclesia, God is, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, originally written to the church at Thessalonica, telling us that there are three priorities in the Christian life. One, to have a heart of joy. Rejoice always. Second, pray without ceasing. Third, in everything give thanks. And so just to make the point, for those who are searching around for God's will, every Christian must have a heart that rejoices in all things, even trials, James says. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. God is working even amid trials in our life. Think about it. That's a personal God. There aren't things that are randomly happening in your life that God is not on the front end of. He is either um, allowing things to happen, or he is prescribing things to happen. I say it this way He's either prescribing or permitting, but God is on the front end of everything we're going through. That's how personal God is. And not only is He personal with us, but He's personal with every other Christian on the earth. This is how big and glorious our God is. So. It's God's will that every Christian have a heart that rejoices in all things. So Paul says that we are to rejoice always. Then he says we are to pray without ceasing. What does that mean for us practically as Christians? Well, it means that we are to have a constant awareness of God and his minute-by-minute work in our lives. So praying without ceasing is this minute-by-minute dependence upon God. And that's what Jesus' prayer life showed. And that's why we're to always be in an attitude of prayer. John Piper says, The key to rejoicing always is to pray continually. That is to lean on God all the time and to call him call to him repeatedly and often to never give up looking to him for help. We are to come to him repeatedly during the day and come often. Those two commands to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing are paired with perhaps the key to both, which is to give thanks in everything. So follow me here. What does a thankful heart do? A thankful heart produces a joy and a rejoicing and a God awareness that is so important for us as we go throughout our day. And that awareness causes us to repeatedly turn to the Lord in prayer. And so how do all these three commands fit together? We are to rejoice always, have a heart of rejoicing. to pray without ceasing, but both of them come from a heart of gratitude to God. And I think that's one of the things that's missing big time in Christendom today, is we have forgotten what God has done for us. We have taken it for granted. Some of us have been a Christian for so long, we just think that, yeah, that's just who we are, and that's just what we do. And we do things that are important. We come to church, we're a part of the body, we serve and all these kinds of things. But the motivation for that is because of what Christ has done for us. And so that is at the heart of everything we do. We're to give thanks in everything because of that. That's why it means so much when Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Even the hardest things in life, I can do those things because of what jesus has done for me so how are we to pray how are we to pray well jesus was asked that very question and so he's given us a model prayer it's not a prayer that we are necessarily commanded to recite but it's a prayer that serves as a model or a pattern for us when we pray so while we're in matthew flip back to the sermon on the mount matthew chapter 6 beginning with verse 1. Matthew chapter 6. You want to know how to pray? Here is a model prayer that Jesus Himself gave. Matthew chapter 6. And there's a lot here. I would love to spend more time on this. We did preach through the Sermon on the Mount a few years back but look at verse one beware of practicing your righteousness before men so to be noticed by them otherwise you have no reward with your father who is in heaven so when you give to the poor do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men truly i say to you they have the reward in full But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then he talks about prayer. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. And he's talking about the Pharisees. "'The pattern of the Pharisees, "'for they love to stand and pray in their synagogues "'and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. "'Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. "'But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, "'close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret.' And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And that's what Jesus did. He withdrew from the crowd. He went back up onto the mountain by himself to pray to the father. Verse seven. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that the beauty of it? We need to show our dependence to him, but he already knows. You see, prayer isn't for him, it's for us. And notice what he says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. And then he says, pray then in this way. So he gives us this model prayer here. amen for if you forgive others for their transgressions your heavenly father will also forgive you for if you do not forgive others then your father will not forgive your transgression so there's so much here again i mean there's like eight sermons in this passage but i want to point out here as it relates to this model prayer I want to point out the components of the prayer. So look with me at the at the prayer again, and I think this would be helpful for us to know how to pray, because a lot of people say to me, you know, I want to pray, but I don't know how to pray. I don't know what that looks like, and and I don't want to say that there is a prerequisite or that we have to have a certain pattern when we pray. I I think we need to be real with God. I think we need to be real with God. We need to open our hearts to the Lord. But notice the components here of Jesus' prayer to the Father. First, he begins by saying, hallowed be your name. So that's adoration. So notice that Jesus does not lead with a request, which is most of the modern day prayers. He leads with extolling God, with worship of God, the Father, with adoration. And so second, he follows adoration with consecration. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's consecration. This is an acknowledgement that the true follower of God wants what he wants. So consecration is a surrender. It's a desire to set apart anything and everything to him. That leads to supplication. Number three, supplication, give us today our daily bread, he says. And so after acknowledging who he is in his holiness and his majesty, praying includes supplication, which includes sharing with God our needs. But notice that Jesus doesn't lead with that. And then there's intercession, number four, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So intercession is praying on behalf of others. So even if they've offended us or more importantly, they've offended God, I found it's almost impossible to remain bitter at someone who you're asking God to be merciful to. And then number five, protection. Adoration, consecration, supplication, intercession, and now protection. Notice he ends, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. So, the temptations that we face in the Christian life, in the spiritual realm, are immense. As we put on the armor of God, we should pray for the Lord's protection. So, going back to Matthew's account here of this story in Matthew 14, we find that the boat that the disciples were in is on its way to the other side of the sea, and the wind was causing huge waves to crash up against the boat. He mentions the fourth watch here, Matthew does. That indicates that it was in the early morning, probably between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So remember, because we sometimes, in our mind's eye see this happening, but remember, the disciples are in a rowboat. They're in a rowboat. This isn't a motorized boat. They're fighting against the wind and the waves with all their might to physically row this boat to the other side of the sea. And just for reference, the Sea of Galilee is 13 miles north to south and seven miles from east to west. It's a good-sized body of water, but as I said previously, you can see In some places, you can see from one side to the other. But the text says here that they were a long way from the other side. So as they're rowing and fighting against the elements, they look up and Jesus is walking on the water coming right at them. And this is the third action of Jesus that we want to consider from our text. Jesus walking. So let's stay here and we'll finish out here in Matthew, but I want to first read how John described it back in our passage in John chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. So the third action is Jesus walking. Look at at, um, this here in John 6, 19 and 20. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, so they're maybe halfway across, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened... But he said to them, it is, I do not be afraid. Now, look again at how Matthew describes this. Look at verse 24. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, so it's like between three and six o'clock in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it, it, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, is, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water, and he said, come, and Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And so Jesus immediately stretched out his hand and took a hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So combining Matthew's account With John's account, we find that the disciples look up and they think they see a ghost. They're terrified. And so they scream out in fear. Grown men who are rowing the boat, manly men, rowing this boat together, trying to get to the other side. The waves are crashing up against the boat. Perhaps the wind is at their face. They can't get anywhere and they continue to try to row. And they look up and they see someone walking toward them. They are petrified. They are scared to death. It's like when you crazy husbands throw out a rubber snake in front of your wife, and they scream out, and you have the most fun with that because they did that. The wind is whipping. They're screaming out in terror. The waves are rocking the boat. Jesus is calmly walking on the water. And as we said, this is the fifth sign that proves that Jesus is who he said he is. The fifth miracle in the Gospel of John that proves his deity. And so Jesus defies all the laws of science and he walks on top of the water. I'm not petrified of water, but I'm not a very good swimmer. So this story really resonates with me. I was very nervous about going on our 20-year anniversary cruise to the Caribbean. And Kathy can tell you, I wanted to go, I wanted to do it, but if I fell overboard, there's no way. I mean, I'm not going to make it. If you've ever been on a cruise, have any of you been on a cruise? They have this emergency drill at the beginning, and so before the boat embarks to their destination, they have this emergency drill, and so uh, they tell you where the life jackets are at. They have this played-out scenario as to how you would get into the little small boats that are on the side of the of the big boat, and and so on. And so they they told us where these these life jackets were at. And so they ring the buzzer, and we have to go get the life jackets. And so we went and got the life jackets, and I took a look at one of those life jackets, and I thought, there is no way that that little life jacket's going to hold me up in the ocean. And so I think I was the only guy that went out for the drill, and I had two of them, one around this arm, one around this arm. Again, the boat hasn't even left the dock yet, and I'm just nervous about, I mean, I... So we get out on the water, and it is glorious. All I could think about as we were on our cruise was God made this. God made this ocean. This is absolutely beautiful. And then when we got to the Caribbean, it was blue waters. Absolutely amazing. Then we got to Israel on our trip about five years ago. And there was an opportunity to go out into the sea, the Dead Sea, and to float. And again, I'm not a good swimmer. I avoid these things if I can. But I thought, man, how cool would that be to actually be able to float on a body of water? And so I went out and did that. It's amazing. You couldn't sink if you wanted to. In fact, I was laying on my back and I floated around for a lot. This is like the best thing in the world. You don't even need a raft. You just float around on the water. And I tried to get up and so I thought, well, okay, I've done this. You know, it's real slimy and everything. So I I tried to put my feet down. My feet bounced back up. And so I'm with my roommate, this guy that I met from Idaho that we roomed together during our trip. His name was Dave too. And I tried several times. I'm like, How do you you stand up? Because as soon as you put your legs down, they bounce back up on top of the water because of the salt content in the Dead Sea. There's nothing living in the Dead Sea. It's why they call it the Dead Sea because the salt kills everything. But it's so buoyant, so you can just lay right on top of the water. You see, it's one thing to be able to lay on top of the water on the Dead Sea. It's quite another to walk on the Sea of Galilee, freshwater lake, freshwater sea. Jesus defies all the laws of science. Any one of us can float on the Dead Sea. It's fun. If you haven't done it, it's fun. But we try to take a step out of the boat into the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to sink down. Jesus defies all the laws of science, and he's walking on the water. And then Peter wants a part of the action. And we know Peter. Peter says things sometimes. He does things sometimes that he probably wishes that he wouldn't have done. So Jesus says, come on. Peter says, if that's you, command me to come out on the water. Come on so peter does but what happens he starts to get cold feet he starts to get cold feet he loses his trust in jesus he begins to sink so the lord stretches out his hand he saves him and we both when they both get into the boat the wind stops the sea was calmed And I can't help but think this is exactly what Jesus does for sinners. He rescues them from the penalty of their sin. Just cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. I'm a sinner. I'm sinking in my sin. I need you. And the Bible says, for everyone who reaches out their hand to Jesus in faith, acknowledging their sin before a holy God, he grabs on to their hand. This is our Savior. All these people watch all these miracles that Jesus did, and they still didn't follow him. They still didn't turn to him as their Savior This is what Jesus does for sinners. As he came to do the will of the Father, he came to die in the place of sinners, to provide a way of salvation for those who are sinking, drowning, need him. So if we turn back to John chapter 6, all this brings us to the fourth action. And it's Jesus comfort. Jesus' comfort. John chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. It says this. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I do not be afraid. And so they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus comforts his disciples. The account in Matthew says, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. These aren't just good stories. We we don't have the gospel accounts just to give us good stories about Jesus and what he did. These have to mean something to us as his people. One of the most profound things about this whole story was the fact that Jesus withdrew and he went to pray. His priority in his life it puts us to shame in many cases. Jesus is the son of God, God incarnate, God in the flesh. He lived a life on the earth of 30 some years in perfection, whole perfection. Never had a sinful thought or a sinful idea, never had a sinful action. He qualified himself in a sense when we look at it from this side. He qualified himself to be the sacrificial lamb. Remember John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus has come to rescue sinners from the penalty of their sin. And you may be here today and you do not know the Savior. You know about Him. You're just like the people that had that huge feast, that buffet of 20,000, 25. There's something special about Him. I mean, yeah, I recognize there's something special but you've never repented of your sin. You've never turned to Jesus Christ in faith. You've never placed your trust in who he is and what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary. And by the way, and you all know this, but those of you who may be listening very intently right now, Jesus was resurrected three days after his death. Yeah, he went to the cross to, to, to die in the place of sinners, substitution, sacrificial death, penal substitution yes he died in the place of sinners but he defeated death and he is alive today and the bible says that jesus is coming again and it could be today we believe in the imminency of the return of christ which it could be today that jesus comes to take all those who have repented of sin and trusted in him to heaven to be with him if you have not trusted in christ today is the day of salvation. Don't be like the people that ate the food and say, Yeah, there's something special about him. Turn to him in repentance and faith today. Those who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for your love and your grace and your mercy and your love and this story that is a real story that happened. It's astounding. It's absolutely amazing. And there's more to come in this Gospel account to show you are exactly who you said that you are. And so we pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here today that needs Christ as Savior, that today would be the day that you open their eyes to your truth. We thank you and praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.